0: Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson. Hello and welcome to this week's Advice and Insights Podcast. This is David Bonson, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner at the Bonson Group. We have a very special uh, week planned. I think I needed to kind of make it a little more enjoyable after my uh, tirade last week on Trump's uh, tariff plan um, I thank those of you who uh, who calmed me down. Um, I stand by every single thing I said, but at least I'm a little happier this week than I was last week. For if for no other reason than what am I going to do? Um, but rather than dig deep into my angst over protectionism, I want to talk about one of my favorite subjects this week, and I've brought one of my. Very favorite people to do that with. And so in a moment here, I'm going to introduce a special guest for the week. But the topic we're going to talk about today is the subject of investing in emerging markets. And as you're going to see, we we call it emerging markets because it does represent a, a different asset class. It represents a different geography Um, But we don't believe in taking a whole entirely different set of principles to what you want to buy and what you consider to be investable when all of a sudden you leave U.S. borders. And we think so many investors do it, sometimes knowingly, um, which I suppose is particularly inexcusable. But most of the time, uh, they don't know they're doing it. They all of a sudden operate off a totally different set of rules and thinking when it comes to investing in the emerging market space. And, and, and I learned close to a decade ago now why I really did not believe that that was a good idea. And the individual I'm going to introduce and the company that he has spent uh, much of his career at uh, was instrumental in my sort of paradigm shift and how I viewed this. I do believe that there's a geopolitical risk premium in a lot of what we call the emerging markets. And, and we're happy to take that. We understand that from a growth standpoint, there'll be certain different risk characteristics that investors hope to get compensated for when they're in Vietnam versus when they're buying a company in Cincinnati, Ohio. But the reality is, is that investors are trying to get the same thing out of emerging markets that they were trying to get anywhere, which is the compounding. Of earnings that will result in more cash that can be used either in a flow of income or a future purchase, et cetera, et cetera. So we invest client capital as part of an overall planning process. We have certain principles we believe in, and we try to go find risk premia—things that can pay us more money that we can compound our client capital at a better rate than we could if we just threw it into cash, through in treasuries to help clients through time, meet their financial goals. So to that end, let me introduce special guest Peter Newell. Peter has served uh, his career for a long period now, the entire time I've known him as a a portfolio manager with Vontable Asset Management. They are the firm that we partner with for our emerging markets investing and have an incredible track record um, in that space. Uh, We won't get into the specific mutual fund or separate account or those types of product details. We just simply want to talk to you today, uh, have a conversation that you guys, as listeners of Advice and Insights Podcast, can get a little bit more of an understanding of what we think makes sense in the emerging market space. So welcome, Peter. Thank you very much, David. It's good to be with you. Well, so let me let me start with kind of a, a pretty important question that may serve as sort of one of the initial things you and I ever talked about if we go back to 2008, 2009, when we began looking uh, at working together, um, and you were educating me in the space. Let's start with that basic question as uh, it pertains to the listeners that maybe have never kind of thought of it this way. Tell me what you think of when you think of emerging market investing. What, what is it supposed to look like?
1: Well, I think that uh, a lot of people go to emerging markets uh, to get uh, superior growth, and that, that has always been the case. And there are firms that are growing at a, at a more rapid pace in emerging markets than that are growing in, let's, let's say, in Europe. On the other hand, there's a lot of companies that, that have inherent issues, high capex, high credit requirement, no pricing power, um, competing on a global basis, and, and very, very volatile earnings growth. So we look at the emerging markets as an opportunity set. But within that opportunity set, there has to be stocks that have a direct connection to your client, our client's needs. And if we're going to compound wealth, earnings have to compound. We have to buy sustainable earnings at a reasonable price. We are growth managers, not value managers. But I think that's where the, uh, the misconception is in emerging markets. I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal of uh, Monday, March 5th, emerging stocks on edge. So it talks about the whole asset class. It talks about the fact that 4.5 billion dollars um, during uh, the last week of, of February uh, came out of the marketplace. and And these are things that that we try to avoid. Can we find businesses that give our clients a very good chance at getting a high single digit, low double digit compounding effect? And what we do is 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 find businesses in the emerging markets that can do that. We find the majority of the businesses in emerging markets too volatile. So I'll give you an example. We studied the earnings volatility over 10 years of our portfolio, and it's about 7%. The earnings volatility of the index over that period of time is 22%. So that's a lot for people to deal with. And I think that's why they get um, cold feet, if you will, on the emerging markets when, when they see volatility. But if we just buy these underlying issues, commit to them as long as they're sustainable, get a reasonable price, we think we can deliver on the upside and protect capital on the downside.
0: So when uh, emerging market investing for U.S. investors started to become almost kind of, let's say, trendy, you know, uh, coming out of the dot-com blow up. I mean, obviously, in the late 90s, there were very few people that felt compelled to do anything other than buy, you know, junk.com. And 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 so the emerging market space has been there a long time. These principles, the equity opportunities in third world countries have been there. But you had an incredible amount of inflows in the early part of 2000s. And historically, I trace a lot of it back to, um, I believe it was Jim O'Neill, I get the name confused, Goldman Sachs codifying that term brick and the concept of there being this sort of new asset class around Brazil, Russia, India and China as these extraordinarily large and powerful countries that were going to come from third world into almost first world opportunities for investors. Tell me where how you would d- differentiate brick investing, particularly as it was known in the kind of first decade of the term's use, from what what uh, you do at Vulnerable, from broader emerging markets investing as you've just described it. Sure. Well, that that's an interesting question. And I think that um, one thing
1: is the... Um, if you look at the BRIC portfolio, uh, uh, which was brought out by a, a major uh, company, it wasn't Goldman Sachs, but another major company, it's it's probably the, the worst performing, and I don't even know if it's still in existence. And, and the reason is, is that even though there was GDP growth in those countries, even though there was a commodity boom uh, until 2010, BRIC is an acronym and investors have to be involved in a philosophy that they believe in, that they buy into, that, that um, gives them comfort for investing. So we say, well, we, we, we like these fast-growing areas. Boy, you know, the majority of stocks in India, which has you know, had a, a, a great run, a, a lot of the stocks have, have very, very poor returns over 15 years. HDFC Bank has compounded at 18%. Per year over the last 20 years, the State Bank of India, about 3%. Uh, Ambev has compounded at uh, 16%. Over 10 years, Petrobras has compounded at negative three. So to say that we we like Brazil, Russia, India, China is really missing the point. I mean, I don't think that someone, if you asked about the U.S. equity market, would boil it down to say, you know, what do you think about the S&P, the opportunity side? Well, we're crazy about Minnesota. I mean, it, it just doesn't. It's it, it's not a good enough answer for people who entrust a lot of money to you.
0: We like sp- so now. Now, yeah. No, the problem, by the way, we have right now is that uh, now all of the listeners know that I stole that line from Peter. I've I've been I've been using that line for a year now, and yes, indeed, it was it was directly something I I got from from you. But it's it's a very important point philosophically. And and by the way, this isn't just retail, small, unsophisticated investors that talk this way or think this way. We hear it all the time in the media, all the time from institutional investors. Oh, well, we're really looking at at India, we're really looking. We want to go buy China, as if you can go buy a country, go pick up a piece of the Capitol building, or, or something like that. And and so I think that that intuitively, once people hear that explanation, and certainly the way you've explained it to me, I very much understand uh, that that uh, your U.S. example is brilliant. We want to buy certain companies and certain business models and certain strategies and innovations. But the fact that something is sitting in Minnesota or sitting in Houston doesn't necessarily make any sense. But let me ask you this. The commodity boom of the 2000s certainly was a big part of that brick narrative in particular. There was an actual investable thesis around industrial production in China, around the exporting of oil and gas from Russia. Tell me how you think of uh, commodities as relevant to what an emerging market investor ought to be doing. Well, if, if we look at,
1: <clears throat> put it in a couple, of, uh, look at it in a couple of different ways. Um, GDP growth, uh, tremendous uh, uh, infrastructure growth, tremendous d- demand for commodities. This is the story in China, and um, this has been the story in China for a, a, tr- uh, a long period of time. It drove iron ore prices up to one hundred ninety-two dollars. Uh, by 2010, and then they slipped to uh, $42, which caused uh, quite a commotion in, in the um, in prices of uh, companies that you know, produced uh, iron ore. But GDP growth, we look at Mexico. Uh, China's grown at about 7.2% over the last you know, 15 years. Mexico's gone to 3.5%. The Mexican stock market has done better than the Chinese stock market over that period of time. So there isn't a correlation between GDP growth per se and stock market returns. You know, something has to fall to the bottom line. The reason that Alibaba, Tencent, NetEase are doing well is because they make money and and they grow. The reason that China hasn't done that well is too many businesses in China, despite their their demand for uh, commodities, uh, nothing has fallen to the bottom line. They're more government-sponsored entities. So we have to separate all this when when we look at the emerging markets. And then let's just break down the facts you know between 2005 and 2010 you know the you know commodities you know sort of drove the emerging markets but then if we go 2010 to 2015 let's take a stock like petrobras with petrobras someone represents emerging market uh, commodities between 2010 and 2015 petrobras was down 24.7% per year per year 2016, 2017, the stock is up 221%. Oh my goodness, what a great bounce back. Over the seven-year period, you lost 4% of your money per year when there are many other opportunities in the emerging market that were sustainable, that you could have bought into, held, not had these tax disruptions in your portfolio. But it just goes to show you what the risk is here in certain businesses. As I mentioned, CapEx is risk. Leverage is risk. Lack of pricing power is risk and global demand. Sometimes we can't really understand. So, the emerging markets gives you a lot of those companies. We're not saying that, you know, where we know where the price is going, we would rather have that more sustainable business with a, you know, 12 to 15% growth rate every year than we would have a business where we lost a significant part of our capital, 25% per year for five years, and then gain back. Some of it, and are still have negative returns over the seven year time frame, and that's what the problem so, in emerging so, markets
0: is. Yeah, well, so let's let's apply that. Then uh, one of the things I used to say when I learned that about Mexico versus China um, was, you know, when you get to the emerging markets, there really isn't a great correlation between GDP growth and equity prices. But I've found out that's true in the U.S. as well. Anyone who's done an actual historical study, first of all, we're now celebrating right around the time that we're sitting here recording the nine-year anniversary of the beginning of what has been one of the most amazing bull markets in U.S. equity market history. It's actually been accompanied by one of the weakest periods of GDP growth in, in history, and so you, you you find out if you do any historical analysis that the principle you you've taught me about emerging markets is actually true of most risk investing. That markets are leading indicators. GDP is an indication that is somewhat lagging, or at best case kind of mid cycle, and when you see the numbers reported, you know, by the time you ever know you're in a recession, meaning negative GDP growth, you've pretty much been well aware of it in the real world for two, three, four quarters, anyways. So I think, I think that principle actually makes a lot more sense when people look into it a little deeper. Now, there's another piece to it. On the commodity front, I think it's very interesting. I mean, the Petrobras story is such an incredible example. And I use the expression a lot, commodity beta, that that if more or less we have a day out there where iron ore is up 4% and oil is up 5% and copper is up 3.5%, you know, you you largely are going to have days where the emerging market equity index happens to be popping up as well. Most risk assets have popped up as well. However, I wonder what you think about commodity beta and the risk it represents in portfolio relative to the growth at reasonable price, robust, bottom-up investing that you're doing. Do you you believe that we can actually inherit a more reasonable risk profile by being less commodity-focused? Absolutely. And you're absolutely
1: right about other markets around the world. I mean, let's compare Facebook to JCPenney and Sears. Um, you know, there, there's there's no uh, comparison. Not all boats rise uh, because the market goes up, and then of course, you know, your point about GDP is is, is absolutely correct. But when you have these sort of you know uh, swings in the emerging markets, they're commodity driven. Right now, you know, the the commodities are are helping the emerging markets. But who is to say? I mean, you know, our problem with China is is there's tremendous infrastructure building. Um, Nevertheless, most of the projects don't kick enough cash flow off to pay back debt service. And, and, and that's an issue. So, how long is this? Are is this commodity prices going to go up? You know, demand. Does the balance sheet get any better? Now, you know, the, the balance sheet at ExxonMobil is certainly better than the balance sheet at, uh, at Petrobras. There, there are two different kinds of companies. But from the emerging market perspective, there are businesses to buy that have much more stability. And therefore, the emerging markets is not, let's get in, it looks good, let's leave, it doesn't look good. It's the underlying business. But you're absolutely correct. It's also the underlying business in Switzerland. It's the underlying business in the United Kingdom. It's the underlying business in the United States and the emerging markets that can they uh, successfully grow their business or are we paying a reasonable price to own that growth? And, and what are the risk impediments around it? There's tremendous risk impediments around commodities. Let's take steel, Pasco Steel, for instance, a stock we've never owned in Korea. You know, there's 379 steel companies in the world. What is their advantage? And now that you've got, you know, the oversight side of, of, uh, of tariffs, but what is the advantage of Pasco Steel over another steel company when they don't control price? And what if Pasco Steel goes out and borrows outside of Juan? Then you've got another risk that we have to think about as well. So the clean balance sheet, sustainable grower, has really been the way to play the emerging markets, to preserve capital in down markets, and to participate in rising markets.
0: Now, in terms of the um, countries that the companies we buy may be based in, we talk about bottom-up investing. I used the expression before. You may have used it as well. But let me quickly just do a little investment vocabulary for the listeners we we distinguish what we kind of call top down investing, which is generally making investing decisions around macro considerations. So top down investors in the U.S. are looking at the broad economy, or they're looking at interest rates, or they're you know th- these types of macroeconomic uh, issues. Um, then bottom up would generally mean kind of tuning out. A pure bottom up uh, investor would be kind of tuning out a lot of the noise and really focusing on individual companies, their fundamentals, their opportunity set. Um, So clearly, the strategy that Peter is laying out here for us today is very bottom-up focused, trying to find great individual companies. And yet, at the end of the day, those companies all have a residence. Those companies have a, a geographical domicile. Tell me where considerations about the the health and, and economic well being and political environment of a country that a company you like or is based in, tell me where that may or may not be relevant. Where does it play into your process, and where does it not play into your process? Well, I like to answer that
1: question. Uh, going back in time, about twenty years ago, Peter uh, Peter Lynch at Fidelity said that if you uh, spend fifteen minutes discussing macroeconomic events, you've wasted fourteen. And I find that a a lot of times, you know, talking macro is a diversion from what are you actually doing in my portfolio? Why should I be comfortable when I'm talking about, you know, oh, we we think that 10 year in Mexico will be um, uh, adversely uh, uh, affected by tariffs? Well, gosh, do do we know that? So, I mean, these, these are the things that, you know, we think about. Now, if you roll forward from the Peter Lynch comment that we totally believed in 20 years ago, and now do you say, okay, if we talk macroeconomics for 15 minutes, have we wasted 14? Well, not exactly. You've probably only wasted 10 because there's so many macroeconomic things going on in the world today. Now, if you go back to Russia in 2014, you know, the ruble dropped by 40%. Well, we don't own any Russian stocks. Good for us. Well, what if you own Carlsberg, who does 50% of their business in Russia? Now their beer is not competitive. So from that standpoint of view, you have to keep an ear to the ground about, okay, how does this macroeconomic event directly affect the earning stream of my company? So by owning 45 companies in the, in the portfolio, because we just can't find, you know, the companies that have high return on equity, high return on assets, high return on invested capital, high margins. I mean, they're not in abundance and keeping an eye on those businesses over time. We do look at, you know, what, you know, what is happening on the macro side, not to make a overall decision about India. Like when they, you know, uh, had to turn all the currency and what are we going to do? Sell all of our stocks. But how does it affect the business that I own? I'll, I'll give you, a, a, I think, but it's an interesting example. Ebola. I remember making a speech at a major brokerage house. They had all their, their top producers in and Ebola was the biggest topic. And their CEO or CFO, uh, chief investment officer got up and started talking away about the threat to, to uh, mankind and, and uh, the markets over this issue. And, you know, I, I rebutted by saying, well, it's two issues. One issue is the health of the, the population in West Africa. And what are we going to do from a Red Cross standpoint of view? What are we going to do from a medical standpoint of view to stop this and help these people? Now we have to look at it from an investment standpoint of view. This is sort of a, a macroeconomic event, an, an unfortunate one, but a macroeconomic event. Where does cocoa come from? West Africa. Do we own Hershey's? Yes. Do we own Sprungli and Switzerland? Yes. Um, so, you know, you own these, these companies that, uh, Nestle is another one, that are dependent upon their ability to buy cocoa. Is the supply going to end because of this threat. So you have to take your humanitarian hat off and put on your portfolio manager hat, which you always are wearing, and think about it. And if the conclusion was that there will be um, no one at, at the dock, no one to ship, contamination, all these different things, maybe that would lead you to sell a stock. But just by discussing it in its broad sense doesn't help we need to assign what is going to happen to our specific stock if this macroeconomic event happens, and we do that, you know, on a more regular basis than we did fifteen to twenty years ago, because there's just more macroeconomic events happening uh, that could affect the portfolio.
0: Very helpful. Now, let me ask you a question: um, Do you? I I made reference early on and kind of the setup to my uh, w- agreement with the idea of a geopolitical risk premium that one can get in the in the emerging markets. Do you accept the reality of such a thing? Do you believe that there is a risk premium uh, that both represents a good opportunity um, in terms of how it discounts valuation of really wonderful companies and that there also is the uh, kind of risk that one has to consider or, or is the bottom-up commitment and and the due diligence around individual companies, and is the maturation of emerging markets so significant that geopolitics is not really maybe what it, we crack it up to be as far as a risk in EM uh, the well, world? I, I
1: think that it's it's always been considered too much of a risk, and um, you know I remember managers you know scoring a country on interest rates well you know, interest rates are high, so they got a low score. What if you don't need to borrow? Um, political risk, you know, on a one to 10 basis, how how do you get that right? South Korea has had tremendous political risk because of their neighbor, but stocks there have done um, done well over the last uh, 20 years. So it, it's, you know, it's hard to to score it. I think that in some cases, Uh, There is a reaction to it. For instance, you know, there's uh, emerging markets lost their edge. The article I was referring to in the Wall Street Journal. uh, The Mexican peso was up 6% on a year to date basis. It lost 1.2% of its value uh, when Trump's uh, tariff ideas came out. Is that permanent? You know, do we know that is going to happen? Does that change uh, Walmart to Mexico? Does that change Banco Santander? Does that change Formento? Uh, you know, uh, beverage uh, distribution, you know, probably not. So in some cases, country risk.
0: But Peter, would you acknowledge though, and hold that thought, I want you to continue, but let me jump in. Would you uh, agree that it changes the pricing, the valuation that public markets will give to those companies along the way?
1: It does on the short term and it does on the short term everywhere else because the stock market... There's uh, an emotional voting machine on a short-term basis, as we see with tariffs and what happens to steel producers. And, and then it's, a, it's a, um, a weighing machine on a longer-term basis, and you will get weighed correctly if you have operating results and they are consistent. And o- over time and earnings, you will be weighed correctly if you're an emerging market company or a US company.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I think I think that's right. I think that 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 principle um, that there are things that will create volatility along the way, and in this case, I asked about geopolitics in EM. There's plenty of other things in the U.S., including geopolitics, by the way. That you know, you think of the day that they announced the Mueller investigation, um, that a special counsel is being announced. I think it was in March, if I remember correctly. It may have been. Uh, May, actually, I think it was in spring of of 2017, market had its worst down day, maybe in the whole year last year. As a matter of fact, we didn't have very many down days. Market the next day, back up. A week later, back up. You look at Brexit, U.S. markets, that was a genuinely historical event geopolitically. We had gone up 500 points the week before. We went down 1,000 points in the day and a half afterwards. 4 days later market back to normal. So geopolitics represents volatility in all risk assets because to your point it affects sentiment it uh, it shakes out traders and weaker hands but but I think the bigger issue you would want us to take away is that if done right the fundamental stories of good well-run companies uh, are not are not altered and that's been the testimony of history. Tell me a little bit about the process of finding those companies. Um, It's a big world, Peter. A lot of countries, a lot of companies, a lot of free market capitalism. Since Milton Friedman began writing about this in the 70s, not only have we seen more and more third world countries embrace elements of market capitalism, but we've seen the very things that he predicted come true. Um, Not a total eradication of poverty and disease, but an incredible – um, elimination of it. We see people with much higher quality living standards around the globe. So there's a lot of opportunities. What is the best way in the world uh, this large to go filter? Uh, well, that's, uh, I guess that's
1: the most important question. And, and that's the question that we need to be answered by clients. Clients look to us for advice, they look to you for advice. They need to be more active and get inside. And this is what I want. This is what is going to assuage me to buy an equity. And, and let me tell you how this, this filter works. Because, as I've always said, we provide clarity and our clients provide choice. We have to tell them here's how the process works. You know, this is what you can expect from us. And as you know, David, we manage expectations in this business. But j- just a, a quick point on, on what you had said before about Brexit. Um, if you look at uh, Royal Bank of, uh, of Scotland. And British American Tobacco, there's two different sets of returns since Brexit. So, you know, getting back to you know the point we made, yes, some things do have an effect. If 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 London is not the capital, the financial capital of Europe, it's going to have an effect. Did it have an effect on Reckitt? Did it have an effect on BAT? In the short term, yes, in the longer term, no, because the earnings came through. Now, back to your your point on on filters, um, you know, each one of us has to uh, have a a philosophy that we buy into, unless you want an ETF and then you get everything. So from our standpoint of view, we've always felt that higher quality, sustainable earnings businesses will do better over time, especially preserving capital in declining markets and participating in rising markets. Companies with high ROE do better than companies with low ROE. Companies with high margins do better than companies with low margins. Now, companies with Low margins in the last two years have done better than companies with high margins. So, you know, it's not uh, perpetual. But over time, it's true. So, high return on equity, high return on assets, high return on invested capital, high margins. That's where we start. We built a database of 40,000 names, and we start a screen by just saying, we want companies with these characteristics. And, you know, that takes us to 1,000. We run, you know, some more quality screens. We have 600 rough. Roughly 600, 650 names of investable companies from our perspective in our universe. That's it. And the analysts go out and see those companies, and knowledge is cumulative in our business. You don't go to a conference and pick up an idea. This is you know the new trend, this is what's gonna happen. Uh, you know, Japan is aging, therefore we want to, you know, buy this or we want to buy that. You have to study these businesses for a long period of time. You have to hold these businesses. And what you need to do is know, can they maintain their margins? Can they maintain their earnings? What am I going to pay? So that's how we filter this quality growth approach that we have.
0: Well, that it makes perfect sense. And, and I think that... Um the, the filtering process around those disciplines and, and and you know, taking a quantitative approach and then going into that qualitative, um, it's certainly what we believe in doing in U.S. equities. And, you know, we run a lot of dividend growth companies. We want companies that from a bottom up are, are growing that uh, free cash flow. And, and it, the reality is you have to have some mechanism to go get companies in your universe and then start filtering from there. So let's, let's close out, Peter. I'm going to do what we call exit questions. I'm going to ask you three questions and, and uh, to just simply say true or false to these three questions. And then you can kind of elaborate a little after we go through. True or false? Companies that are low quality that are going through a period of outperforming companies that are high quality become tempting true. to buy. True or false, when one sees commodity beta outperforming good valuation, growth at a reasonable price, commodity beta becomes tempting to buy. And then true or false, companies that are uh, in the past uh, looked at and viewed skeptically for their long-term opportunity, but then prove the doubters wrong, yet function in a country with no rule of law should be considered in your uh, equity uh, philosophy? For the most part, false. So to the extent that uh, the first two questions were answered true, you would say that they are uh, tempting for investors um, but then would you follow on to that and say the temptation should be resisted? Maybe, maybe elaborate a little on that.
1: It should be resisted. And this is the problem with the emerging markets. The emerging markets are deceptive. They lure you in on a shorter term. And then they disappoint because the businesses that are in these commodity-driven businesses have those risk factors. They still have the CapEx. They still have a high credit requirement. They still have tremendous competition. And they have no pricing power. So then the disappointment comes, and then people sell, uh, as we referred to in this article in the Wall Street Journal. And and that, is in, from our world, is not investing. Investing is finding a business that has a direct connection to my needs. My needs are a compounding 8 to 9%. I have to find a business that can continually compound at those levels. Now, if I find it in, in Europe or I find it in the emerging markets, I don't see what the big difference is there. Maybe one can get diversification by having some stocks in this part of the world and some stocks in this part of the world. But now this this lower beta high quality approach will lead to more stable returns over time. And I think that people look at the emerging markets. Now, what does it do? Everyone sells out. It creates some sort of an underlying value because they have a tendency to sell everything and not just what what doesn't work. Um, So- Yes, it, it it is tempting. I mean, look at tech. Was tech tempting in 1997, 1998, and 1999? It certainly was tempting. Um, and that's why the S&P was down 51% in 2000 and 2001. So all the gains were lost, but they were sort of ill-begotten gains because there was nothing underneath there to sustain those businesses over a 10, 15, 20, 30-year time
0: frame. At the end of the day, the ability to, to actually judge and analyze and understand good businesses becomes the, the real value proposition for a good money manager. And Being able to predict what the market will do, what sentiment will do, what psychology will do, what terrorists will do, what politicians will do is not only a fool's errand, but it's one that there's no historical precedent of anyone being able to do successfully, but being able to judge good quality businesses, make appropriate buy and sell decisions around that, that's at the heart of what you're talking about. Do you think I've, I've summarized a lot of your viewpoint, uh oh, absolutely,
1: David, and I, and I think that's why you know we've got along uh, you know so well since we we've met uh, in the past. I, I was reading something really interesting about you know politicians who stay, see light at the end of the tunnel, they want to extend the tunnel, and so you know you you have to say okay, I have to I have to put this aside. I have to put those those you know five or six elements that you just talked about. I have to put it aside. I will consider it, but. Only how it's going to affect this better business, this dominant market share business, this high barriers to entry business from continuing with high margins, continuing with sustainable earnings. And that's what our job is on a day to day basis.
0: Well Peter I can't thank you enough for for being here with us hopefully we can we can do it again sometime. I can assure you that uh, now that I know how this whole conversation went I'm, I'm positive our listeners are going to get a ton out of it. Our clients are going to really appreciate getting a little deeper dive into much of the philosophy that goes into how their own money and capital is being managed. Um, I will say this to everyone when we talk about disappointments that can come up. We can think we have a certain investment thesis and something changes, and maybe that's in a misjudgment of a company's business model. Maybe it is one of these macro events where there's a, a, a natural disaster that affects you know, chocolate production in a certain country or something. But generally speaking, good companies can get through disappointments, and Peter and I are a testimony to that. We, but we have our friendship and business relationship in place despite the incredible disappointment we both suffered of C si Yang, the Chinese restaurant at Fifty First Street and Park Avenue that closed years ago. If we can get through that disappointment, Peter, I think that was we can a true test, anything.
1: David. A true test. <laughs>
0: All righty. Thanks again, Peter. And thank you all for listening to Advice and Insights Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe, check it out, send it, share it, do what you will. Reach out to us at the Bonson Group anytime with any questions. We want to dig deeper. We want you to understand your portfolio. We appreciate your listening and we look forward to coming back to you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening
2: to our Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.